these six alterations that he offers in comparison to what has been culturally dominant for the first years as given by the, the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew chapter 5, begin to read at verse 38, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please keep those verses open as we think about them this morning. Familiarity is both a bit of a blessing and a curse. When we become familiar with someone or something or some experience, we, we know what to expect, don't we? We know that we will not be taken by surprise. It's the reason why you order the same thing every weekend at the Chinese or the Chippy. You know what you want, like and that's why you order it. You get the same thing. Very rarely do we kind of deviate and pick something else. But also, familiarity can be a curse, can't it? Can't it? What once was amazing, what once used to fill us with awe and joy, it doesn't really have the same effect on us anymore. Maybe harkening back to your favourite Chinese, your takeaway, your favourite meal, maybe it started to become a bit dry You've started to convince yourself that it tasted way back, it tasted better way back when you first got it, but now it's different. Maybe the the recipe has changed, but that is the curse of familiarity. Familiarity can be a blessing and it can be a curse. And that's fundamentally clear and true when we come to the teaching of the Bible for many of us. And when we come to these final two examples of living that Jesus expects of those in his kingdom. I sense that you uh, and myself indeed, that we are in a dangerous position of familiarity. We have heard these sentiments before that I've read from Matthew chapter 5. We hear things like turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, and they really don't have the same impact on us that they really should. 
They don't shock us. They don't have the same stirring impact that it would have had for Jesus' first listeners. This morning we're going to delve into those final, those two final kingdom living examples given to us from the lips of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, as he taught his first batch of followers, his disciples, and how to live with this kingdom mindset. Let's think about the first example, retaliation, in verses 38 to 42. Well, to be honest, it could have been a divine sovereignty or just a coincidence for me in the past week because I had a very unique and apt and relevant conversation with a random man that I met for the very, very first time. We randomly got chatting in a coffee shop, which is no surprise to find me there. And the man began to retell a situation that he had been involved in recently in the last few weeks. He began to tell the story to me of a young tradesman that he had booked to come to his house and do a small job for him. The young tradesman came and went And after which the man, as he was going through his house, realised that his phone and his laptop were now missing. They had been stolen. This man had welcomed this young tradesman into his house. He had offered him work, he had given him work, and he had used it for an opportunity to steal from him. As he shared this story with me, it was clear how upset and angry that he was. And then he said the line, which was coming from a mile off. He said this to me. If I was to see him again, I wouldn't think twice about getting my own back. If I was to see him again, I wouldn't think twice about getting my own back. To be totally honest with you, that is not a direct quote, uh, but it conveys the sentiment of what he did say to me. If you want the direct quote, you can ask me later. I can't really share it from a pulpit, to be very honest with you. But depending on, on who you are, we can sympathise. I'm sure most of us can sympathise with that man's ordeal. There's something natural within us that goes, yeah, of course, That would be my reaction, that would be my response, those would be the thoughts that would be in my head if someone came into my house and and stole from me. We sympathise with this man and injustice has incurred. And just like us, we we naturally want the perpetrator to pay a penalty. And depending on, on who you are, maybe you would like to be the one who offers, who delivers and carries out the penalty. In this penultimate example, the Lord Jesus speaks clearly of the deep desire within all of us to retaliate when we have been wronged, or to think of it in different language, to seek personal revenge. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is quoting from the law of Moses found in Exodus 21, the second book of the Bible. And when we turn to Exodus 21, we, we find that, that Moses is given the law and how we are to treat slaves. 
And specifically in when this is quoted in Exodus 21, 24, what is being spoken about was a very specific scenario. And it refers to if, if a man or a group of men were to attack a, a pregnant woman and because of their attack and the harm that they were to the cause, that she were to give birth because of it. But if there was no harm caused, then the man or the men who, who, caused, who caused that harm, they were to pay a fine. But if there was harm caused, then we read these words in Exodus 21. You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see the general principle. Whatever harm the man caused, he must receive the same consequence. This is justice being carried out. It was an equaliser of justice. And again, we might ask, well, why? why? Why does this need to be stipulated in the law? Well, to be honest, this was happening in, in many ancient societies. Punishment was handed out with any regard of the individual case, often far exceeding the crime. So actually, what we have in Exodus 21 with the law of Moses is actually a restriction to the limits of retaliation, not to justify any means or measure that it was a free-for-all, and what we actually see, we see, is God's good provision. This isn't God allowing his people just to, to seek revenge at their will, but was actually allowing justice to be carried out in appropriate and conditional ways and means. And because of that, God's people were liber- liberated. No longer did they have to live their lives seeking personal revenge in their every waking thoughts. Jesus here, as we come back to the Sermon on the Mount, he is challenging the status quo. The world says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but Jesus says this. Do not resist the one who is evil. The problem, which is implicit, is that what was rightfully an Old Testament law, which was good and proper, was now being abused by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in the day of Jesus. And we're back to the start. The start. We went full circle. Why, why God give this law to Moses in the first place? The scribes and the Pharisees, they're acting like these ancient foreign societies during the days of Moses. They were enacting personal revenge at whatever cost, as long as they got their own back, as long as their pride was restored. And to do so, they have twisted the word of God. Jesus is calling out their, their hypocrisy, their arrogance again. And to paint the picture in greater clarity, Jesus then goes on to offer four examples of grace or, or four illustrations from the everyday lives of the disciples. And we'll think about them quickly first one is this, if anyone were to slap you in the face that Jesus says, very famously, we know this, we've heard this, to turn the other cheek. The scenario is, is, is public insult. It's not so much the physical pain of being hit on the face, but it's more about your, your pride being hurt. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If anyone would sue you and, and take your tunic, 
Jesus says, give them your coat. Now we're into the, the, the legal setting, the legal realms. If someone was to bring you into the court and to sue you and to try to take from you your tunic, the tunic was the, the inner robe that uh, many men would have wore. What does Jesus say? Give them the, your cloak. What was the cloak? The cloak was the, the outer robe. This was absolutely scandalous. Many people would not have had an, an inner robe, but everyone would have had an outer robe. Jesus is basically saying, give everything. If anyone would force you to walk a mile, Jesus says, carry on for another mile. Might not initially get the context here, but what Jesus is referring to is, is in regards to the, the military context. See, Roman soldiers would, would force any lay person and had the power to tell them to carry out any job. If they were to come alongside and say, you have to do this, if you have to start helping build this road, you had to do it. If they were to tell you, you have to bring this parcel, this thing, to a next, the next town, you had to do it. We see this in the Bible. You think of as Jesus is going to the, uh, going to the cross, the soldiers tell Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. What does Simon do? Carries the cross. Has to do it. Jesus says, if a Roman soldier tells you to go and walk one mile, you go even further. And finally, if anyone asks from you, you're to give. And what Jesus is getting at, if, if that uncomfortable person, the beggar, the person that wants to borrow from you, difficult people, Jesus says you're to give. Not depending on whether the person has earned it or even could pay it back or you'll receive any prestige societally. You're to give. You're to let go. What is Jesus saying here to his first batch of followers? The world in which they live in says, demand your rights, seek revenge at all costs. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. The world says revenge. Jesus says grace. You know, often this passage is misinterpreted or horrendously caricatured. I'm sure many of us have, have heard that. Maybe we have little sentiments of it in our mind. Many have used these passages to argue for absolute passivism. Some have used it to stereotype Christians as just pushovers. And even some have used it as an excuse for their own cowardice, their lack of action or willingness to do anything. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus really saying, well, to follow him you have to become a little bit of a wet blanket? You know, many people think that of Christians, don't they? That's what they think of Christians. They think they're just big pushovers. In fact, it's probably one of the significant reasons why many people don't become Christians. They think if they become a Christian, well then they have to do all this stuff they in the world's eyes. This is all weak. Makes you vulnerable. It's not that you're strong and powerful. Why would I want to sign up for anything like this? So they say, no thank you. Is this what Jesus is getting at? No, not at all. In the, the kingdom of heaven, we are not to be people striving after revenge. 
the upside down world of the kingdom of heaven, instead of pounding for revenge, we offer grace. Why? Why would we do this? Why would we act like this? We act, we live like this because we, as brothers and sisters in Jesus, are people who have been divine recipients of grace. We are people who categorically deserve to be reprimanded. We are due a severe penalty. Oh, we love to, to convince ourselves that, you know, we're really not that bad. You know, that we just have a series of character flaws, behavioral mishaps. When we take all that away, when we truly look at ourselves in the mirror of the the word of God and our hearts are clearly exposed, and when we see our sin, we see see the depths of it, we see it affecting every strand and fibre of our being, we see it crippling our worlds, and above all, we see who we have sinned against, our Heavenly Father, our royal Psalm, the King of David, famous words, Psalm 51 as David has committed the great sin against Bathsheba, he says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Like David of old, ourselves, we have committed high treason against the one who has created us, the one who sustains us, and the one who has offered salvation to us. And in those moments, ask this question, Does the Lord God seek personal revenge? Do we get any notes or any hints of God acting like that? Do we see God flying off the handle to to get his own back? The answer is no. See, to be a part of, of God's kingdom is not to be a recipient of divine retribution, but to be a recipient of lavish grace. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you know that your sins are forgiven, then you, me, we, are people who have not received what we have deserved. I wonder if you, as you think about this, as we think of revenge, retaliation, I wonder, do any examples come to your mind? I wonder, have you seen this life, way of life truly demonstrated? Can you recall a time when you've seen this exemplified? Or maybe you've heard of someone showing grace instead of enacting revenge? It's difficult to think of really wonderful examples. I've racked my brains and to be honest, I've struggled to think of examples like this. Maybe you know some examples and what a wonderful way to start a conversation besides starting it about the weather after our time together. Share a story with someone. Share an experience that you've had of someone living like this. For us as Christians, we, we follow a saviour who perfectly reflected this attitude. As we think of the life of the Lord Jesus, many times, He could have demanded his rights, demanded his privileges. He could have, in all respect, he could have sought to live for his personal revenge. But we see no example. We see that the high points of history, the climactic points of the life of the Lord Jesus, the moment of all moments that anyone could have cried for revenge, 
as he receives the vile mistreatment leading up to his heinous murder. The kangaroo courts, the lashes, the lies, the scorn, the spitting. Yet what are the words that leave the lips of our Saviour as he dies? But Father, forgive them. That is our Saviour. That is the Lord Jesus Christ in all his patience and beauty. He leads the way in God's kingdom. And we simply follow. He compels us to live likewise. And there's, is God penetrating your soul? Is he speaking clearly to you this morning? Are there, are there areas where you're seeking revenge? You've, you've held resentment. It's causing you continuous anxious. Maybe it's all that you think about. You just can't seem to have peace. We'll take comfort that in the glory to come there is one day coming that every wrong will be made right. Jesus, our King, our Saviour, will return as judge in perfect righteousness. Let him be the judge. Let him be the good, perfect judge. I'll liberate you. I'll free you to live. Let's think of our second example. Love your enemy. In verses 43 and 48. God's missional strategy in the Old Testament. It's often thought of in the terms of, of come and see. The nation of Israel were to be a pure and bright beacon. Reflecting the, the glorious beauty and power of their creator God's. God's commission to them was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul and strength. But yet they were to love their neighbour as them, as themselves. It was the royal law. We see it littered all over the Old Testament. Howeverly and unfortunately, between what we have in our Bibles, which is the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, things have changed. An addition has, has been made and we have this once again before us in this, the final example. Read with me verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The change is clear, it's evident, it's explicit. Once again, the scribes and Pharisees, they're at it again. They've, they are misconstruing the teaching of the law. At one part, yes, they seem happy, they seem comfortable to, to love their neighbour, which, to be honest, they've completely misunderstood anyway. But they have added that you must hate your enemy. A couple of questions. Who were they to think of as their neighbour? The, the word neighbour quite literally means near dweller, anyone who's in close proximity to you. So really, whoever you come in contact with, and whoever you bump into... They are your neighbour. So literally, a, a neighbour was anyone. And God sought his people to understand their neighbour in the broadest sense of the term. That did not sit well, really, with the natural human heart and indeed with that of the, the scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders. What about the neighbour who wrongs? The one that, that abuses? The one that attacks? The one that... Steals your freedom. Well, that person, that person can't be a neighbour. That person must be an enemy. 
And who was their enemy? Well, the people of God have been ruled and dominated by many world forces, but now they, as we think of the times of Jesus, find them at the mercy and the disposal of Rome. Rome ruled. Rome governed. Rome took their freedom and forced them to pay taxes. Rome was the enemy. And basically everyone followed along. And could you blame them? Even disciples thought that their Messiah was about to, was to come and to obliterate Rome and to set them free from their hardship and persecution. Of course, hate your enemy. Hate Rome. As we think of them, we have to think of us. It begs the question, do we consider as an enemy our phone? Now, I know we don't really like to think in those terms. We might, ne- we might not naturally think of people who are enemies, but that might be true. You may legitimately think of people who are completely opposed to you, that you would categorize as enemies. But I would say there's a chance that many of us don't think in those terms. You may not use that word. Let me ask, who who are the people, who is the group that you just struggle with the most? They've caused you the the greatest frustration, they've caused you the greatest upset, harm in your life. Again, for some of us that might be just very clear, very obvious. For some of us it may not. It may require some sincere heart-searching there's a tension here in this final example. It comes to the boil, so to speak. Jesus concludes his list with another alteration. Verse 44. But I say to you, love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus ends with love. Love your enemies. Jesus does not say, be nice, be polite, be respectful, even like them, but love them. Sacrificially, generously give, exert beyond your natural realms of comfort kind of love. Honestly, frankly, this makes zero sense outside of the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus. Why would anyone want to live like this? Why would anyone want to show love, even respect, to your enemy? For the Christian to love your enemy reveals the depths of impact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus has had upon your heart. See, when we love those who who condemn and mistreat us, we are testifying to a fundamental, glorious truth that undergirds the gospel. See, we were not saved because of our quote-unquote loveliness. Sorry to break the, the bad news to you. We were not merely helped or aided by the grace of God. No, we were saved as we once stood in total opposition to the Lord. The Apostle Paul, Romans 5, says this, For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were enemies. Not if or maybe, or maybe there's just a small group of us. We were all encompassing enemies of God. Paul again will speak of those who are the the enemies of the cross in the letter to the Philippians chapter 3. And think about that for just for a moment with me. The, The event that caused my salvation... The, the, the event that caused your salvation, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I, we stood as, as enemies to that source of salvation. The, the very necessity of the cross was precisely because of our identity as, as enemies. But then here comes Jesus. Here comes our Saviour. When he hangs on a cross, who does he hang for? Does he hang for the lovely? Does he hang for the, the tolerable? Does he, does he hang for those who sort of would give him a hearing? No, here's Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who bleeds, who hangs for his enemies. He hangs for a criminal who would taunt him, to onlookers, who hurl abuse at him, and to you and I, who at one point in our lives had no time for this man from Galilee. See, to love your enemy beautifully reflects the gospel. It reflects exactly what the Lord Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. That is why we love our enemies, because by loving them, we show the power of the gospel in our lives. That's only half the alteration. Jesus goes on to say that we are to pray for those who persecute you. You know, prayer may seem like the last thing you'd want to do. Praying for an enemy, you may not even be able to say that person's name. It brings you so much pain. But it is the best place to start. And I think there's no, it's no coincidence that Jesus offers this. Because that's exactly the foundation that we need to begin. If we try to love on our strength and ability, we will only go so far. The Lord Jesus knows your heart and your limits more than we know ourselves. He calls us to what we need. We need his divine help. We need the spirit working within us. Because let me be clear, and if I've been at all trivial at, at the, about this, I apologize. But let me say this clearly. This is not easy. Sometimes we come to this and we, we see these in the, we always see spiritual platitudes. They're cliches. We just think, yeah, we just have to love our enemies. And sing Ring Around the Roses and just sing Kumbaya and it'll all be nice. This is not easy. And I don't begin to sympathize or to understand the struggles that you may have. Whenever I, once we read this passage, names, faces immediately came to your mind. You can think of people that have wronged you, that have caused you harm. I don't begin to gloss over any of this. This difficult this is not easy 
To love our enemies is not straightforward. We may receive a whole host of responses apart from the one that we truly seek. It can be difficult, nearly impossible, to stand up for Jesus in school. It can be difficult, it can be nearly impossible to continue to work with integrity, with high standards, when you have the most difficult and biased boss. It can be difficult, it can seem almost impossible to offer forgiveness to those who have no sense of the wrong that they have caused you. If that is you, if you struggle, then the advice and the guidance of the Lord Jesus is to start with prayer. Pray for your own heart. Pray for the heart of those who stand against you. Pray that it would be softened. Pray for patience. For wisdom to know how to interact. Pray that you would be faithful and even praying that you would not stop. Pray. As you pray for those who oppress you, Jesus says that you're giving ample evidence of your identity as children of God. You see that little nugget of encouragement at the start of verse 45. Then Jesus reminds very wonderfully of the the sovereign care and nature of God, which is a healthy reminder for, for all of us. When we get so embittered towards those who have oppressed us, who have shown evil to us, our God is the one who showers grace on everyone. The sun and the rain shines and pours on the evil and the good. God is in control. God oversees. Then Jesus cranks up the pressure in 46 and 47. And he gets at mediocre love, if I can frame it like that. Mediocre love has very little effect apart from patting yourself on the back. The words of Jesus are piercing here. And Jesus really says this. If we think that we show love by restricting our love to those who are just like us, or show love to us, then we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Jesus says, really, how is that any different from anyone else that lives in this world? Love that is motivated by the response of the person, Jesus says, not true love. And notice the irony implemented by Jesus. Note, maybe you've already noted this. Note the the two groups mentioned who who are mentioned. The tax collectors and the Gentiles. The two groups that are most often reviled by the audience that Jesus is speaking to. They were, by extension, they were also the enemy. The tax collectors, they were the the worst. They were the scumbags of their society. Jesus says, if you love with conditions, you're no better. If we act like we if we act like this, then we have embraced a certain level of gospel amnesia. We have totally forgotten who we were before the Lord Jesus saved us. But God's love is a selfless love, a sacrificial love, a love that gives itself for the good of the recipient. And our motivation overflows from the grace of Christ. No longer do we look 
at others and try to perceive whether it is worth caring for them. But we love and we trust Christ to work. As we come to an end, and indeed as we come to the end of this section, Jesus closes in verse 48. And it seems that all that has went before seems to contradict and to be up for debate. There seems to be a big mistake here. Is Jesus calling us to be perfect? Surely this was the precise problem of the scribes and Pharisees. How in the world can we be perfect? How can we live up to that standard, the standard of our perfect God in heaven? Is this what Jesus is, is really getting at here? Well, no, not quite. See, to, to love our enemies is to pursue after the very heart of God. It's to get to the, the essence of who our God exactly is. And the word perfect really conveys the idea of, of wholeness, of, of completeness, that we stick to our task. And for us, you may not see the fruit of showing love to those who mock and despise. But rest assured that in it you are honouring Lord, your Lord God. We are to live our lives in the light of the perfection of our Heavenly Father. That is our ultimate goal. Is the Lord speaking to you this morning? Where have, where have I, where have, have you, where have we been failing to love those who have wronged us? What must we do? We must pray. But as we respond, we go as people changed by the grace of God, looking to the Lord Jesus, who did not live a life filled with revenge. Or did he restrict his love? No. And may he receive the glory as we live for him. Amen. Amen. We're going to come to the table in a moment.